You're a marketer, not a lawyer. But your organization may count on you to identify problematic advertising practices. Well, you've come to the right place. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. And I'm Lane Gordon. We're partners in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Law Group. Together, we're asking our Venable colleagues questions that are designed to help you navigate the increasingly complex world of ad law. Each week, we'll dive into a new issue, from negative option marketing to copyright protection to influencer endorsements. Our goal is to give you something to take away from each episode that will help fill your advertising law toolkit. Thank you for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show. Hi, I'm Shaheen Rothermel, a partner in Venable's Advertising and Marketing Group. This week, we're talking about lead generation. The world of lead generation and performance-based customer acquisition is rapidly evolving. As your organization grows, so can your risks. Some of these can be too large for advertisers who buy leads through third parties. I'm here with two of my colleagues who know a lot about this issue. Ari Rothman, a partner at Venable who focuses on internet and mobile marketing, telemarketing and payment processing, and Jonathan Pompan, who is chair of the firm's Consumer Financial Services Practice Group and CFPB Task Force. We're talking today about best practices that advertisers using lead generation should consider to mitigate legal risk. Ari and Jonathan, welcome. Thanks for being here today. We're glad to be here. Great to be here, Shaheen. So Jonathan, what is lead generation? Well, lead generation is the process of identifying and cultivating individual consumers who are potentially interested in purchasing a product or service. And the goal of lead generation, of course, is to connect companies with those consumers that they can convert from leads to customers. Now, a lead can be any consumer. And depending on what type of activity it might be in terms of what the end product or sales item might be, the consumer may be one who's already pre-identified through some other targeting mechanism, or maybe not, could be just organically generated. Now, it's also important to recognize that lead generation can be done through any number of different formats and medium. It could be online, which is oftentimes the most common in today's day and age, but it can be also mail, brick and mortar, telephone, email, and a combination of any of those And organizations that are lead generators may be just lead generators on their own, maybe just publishers of a website or a mailer uh, comes up with their own creative and puts it out there and acquires inquiries from consumers. On the other hand, lead generators may also be the actual merchants, the lenders, the sellers of goods and services, and uh, anyone else that is looking to take the information from a lead and do something with it. Now, in some cases, those organizations can't do anything with the lead, and so they seek to monetize it by selling it to somebody else. And now that entire mix comes with a host of legal and regulatory issues, some of which are just general in nature that would apply across the board. Some are unique to the activities of the organization and the phase at which the consumer inquiry is in. And then sometimes as an overlay, there may be vertical-specific requirements that permeate the entire mix. And by that, we mean, for instance, in the consumer finance space, uh, education, home services, and any other segment that may be popular for lead generation can have its own regulatory structure that then influences what can and can't be done. 
both from the standpoint of the lead traveling through the system, but also the substantive advertising and marketing claims that may be made to that lead throughout that process. Now, of course, lead generators are oftentimes charging upstream their customer from a B2B standpoint and commercializing the lead. And in some cases, that lead and that sales mechanism may also be subject to regulation. For instance, in the consumer finance space, in the mortgage arena and others, there are very specific restrictions on how advertising and marketing can be compensated and referral prohibitions. And that is an area that is complex, very intricate, and one that requires definitely a a deep dive. Thanks, Jonathan. Ari, can you talk about what some of the legal risks are? Sure. So I look at it from three angles, and Jonathan touched on them, but I'll sort of distill them. The first angle is lead generators are often near the entry point or are the entry point for the consumer and the ad or service or vendor that's ultimately being advertised. So you have to consider all of the consumer-facing laws and regulations that will depend on what it is the lead generator is generating leads for. So you have consumer-facing. Then often lead generators are selling that data or transferring it to another party. So there's risks associated between the lead generator and the party to which the lead generator is transferring or selling the data. And then you've got, in some cases, lead generators are selling the data to other lead generators as opposed to a retailer or a marketer. So you have to consider those angles as well. The angle between the lead generator and other lead generators is largely but not exclusively contractual. It's making sure that the lead generator that's selling data to another lead generator is only providing what that lead generator is promising to provide and is not promising to provide things that it can't or is not providing. Um, A common fact pattern is, is a lead generator selling data to another lead generator or a publisher or something like this, and they make representations about their data. My data is compliant, it's fully opted in and everything else. Well, it might very well be opted in, but it might not be opted in for the purposes that the lead generator to which the lead generator selling the data wants that data. So you have to think about those contractual issues. Then the same is sort of applies when you're going upstream. You only want to provide to that upstream provider or buyer what it is you are saying you are going to provide or what it is that upstream vendor or retailer requested and not over-promising and being very careful about what defense and indemnity obligations you are accepting because a common fact pattern we see in civil litigation is the upstream vendor gets sued for something the lead generator did or allegedly did or the data that it provided and there's a demand by the retailer against the lead generator say, look, you got to take care of this. You have to defend and indemnify me. And depending on what that contractual relationship looks like, the lead generator may or may not have to defend or indemnify the party to whom it sold the data or transferred the data. So we always look at that angle. And then, of course, the most important one, I think, is the consumer-facing risks. That could range anything from, let's say, TCPA, where the lead generator is generating leads through 
text messages, phone calls, or is obtaining data to sell to someone else for that purpose. You obviously have to obtain prior express written consent. In most cases, that's an overgeneralization, but let's just assume for those purposes that that's a requirement. That's something you have to do. If you're making claims about a product for which you're generating leads or you're making representations about a party for which you are generating leads, all of that has to be accurate. Even if it's the party giving you the information, it still has to be accurate because from the consumer standpoint and the regulator standpoint, you're owning that statement because you're the one communicating it to the consumer. There are some licensed functions, you know, whether it's insurance or, or what have you, you have to be careful about depending on what kind of insurance you are generating leads for or what kind of government programs. We see that a lot too for lead generation. It's very vertical specific. But bottom line is the lead generator, even if it's not the one selling the goods or services, is going to be bound by all those laws and be bound to make only truthful and accurate claims. I want to talk a little bit about where you've seen this gone wrong in real life. So you both have defended regulatory investigations and lawsuits and and class action lawsuits, and even, I think, contractual lawsuits where things go wrong. So Jonathan, can you give us one or two war stories about what went wrong? What did you have to do? And maybe what could have been done better? Sure. And Shaheen, you're absolutely right. There are any number of ways that folks in the lead generation space can incur risk. For instance, organizations frequently will lack fidelity between uh, what is being promoted and what is ultimately available to the consumer. The collars and cuffs simply don't match. And that can run in many different ways, whether it be on the consumer-facing website when the inquiry is first made by the consumer, all the way through the chain to the point of potential sale, where again, there may be twists and turns in what's promoted to the consumer. That is fairly basic do what you say and say what you do, but it is an area that organizations have run afoul of marketing laws and consumer protection laws for that very reason. And frequently, it also involves a lack of oversight of the chain of the inquiry. There's sometimes a lack of transparency between what a merchant ultimately knows about how the lead was generated and how the inquiry came in, and that can often lead to a disconnect as well. Another example from a government enforcement standpoint can be scenarios where the government agency is asserting that there's a lack of licensing or regulatory compliance with very specific, in some cases very nuanced, requirements around the activities that are being promoted. That would include, for instance, in the areas of consumer financial services, education marketing, and in others where you will have, in some instances, and it's not always uniform, state regulation that would require registration or licensing of the lead generator, as well as a variety of other substantive compliance requirements around that. Now, even in those scenarios, though, there's a lack of uniformity, so it can vary. In some instances, just slight changes to the way the inquiry is achieved and the promotion can change the analysis as to whether or not a license or registration may be needed. And in the regulated spaces, frequently the end purchaser, so for instance, a lender in the consumer financial services space, 
will be exercising due diligence, monitoring, and a high degree of influence over its advertising and marketing programs, including any third-party lead generators. And they will expect a degree of compliance that is, if not equal, in some cases, greater than what perhaps the government or the company itself would expect of itself. In those instances, though, it's not for want of uh, reason. The regulated entities in the consumer financial services space, for instance, face the potential for, in some cases, ongoing supervisory examinations, which include coverage of lead generation activities and the purchase of third-party leads, as well as also the potential for enforcement investigations. And in those instances, again, there'll be a high degree of scrutiny around advertising and marketing practices, including third-party lead generation. Ari, what about you? Could you give some examples of where you've seen this go wrong? Well, on the private enforcement side, I see brands that are trying to protect themselves go after lead generators that are using brand names in an inappropriate way. So we start with the premise that what's valuable for lead generators is the data that they obtain and sell, whether it's email addresses, names, phone numbers, The data is what keeps them in business, and the monetization or sale of that data is what keeps the lights on for these businesses and allows them to prosper. Some lead generators will push the envelope in a way to really get that information. So let's take the example of someone selling a product, and they have customers that they're going to sell the leads to for that product. I have seen lead generators trash the competitor of the company that hired them and say false things about the competitor just to get that data. And if a lead generator trashes the wrong competitor, that competitor will put a lot of pain, if not try to put that lead generator in a cardboard box. And so the lead generators really need to be careful about what they say about competitors' products using trademarks, obviously using trademark infringement and causing confusion. I've seen that too, to get that data, which is another way of saying play it straight up. Don't make false statements about competitors of the people who are hiring you and don't dupe consumers into providing data thinking that the lead generator is representing one entity when it's really representing another. That's another one I've seen. It's a very strong case for the company whose trademark is being infringed or who's being trashed in an illegal way. So that's one thing I've seen. Obviously, we've seen a ton of cases over lead generators obtaining data, phone numbers for others to call or text that don't have the proper consent. That is very common It's sometimes hard to comply depending on when the data is being collected and sold and what ping tree it's going on and those sorts of things. But that's another common area in in civil litigation that we're seeing because the party who's making the call gets sued but then turns around and goes after the lead generator and the lead generator often has to respond to that in one way or another. So those are two big areas that I'm seeing that are still really hot right now. So if I'm a company... I'm using lead generators, and maybe I've got a network that's sitting between me and the actual entities going out and getting the leads, or even doing the advertising. 
And those lead generators downstream, maybe I do know who they are, maybe I don't know who they are. But they're going out and they're chugging along. And then one day I get a demand letter or a lawsuit that says one of them did something wrong. And I'm sitting here thinking, wait, what the heck? I didn't even know who they were, let alone that they were going out and doing that. Maybe it's an email violation of California's anti-spam law. Maybe it's a TCPA telemarketing lawsuit. What do you tell a company that says that? And how do you defend them when that happens? Well, what I say and how I defend it might vary a little, but I always tell my clients who use downstream affiliates and lead generators to assume that they are going to be held responsible in one way or another for what their downstream affiliates and lead generators do. The FTC certainly takes that position. It's harder for private class action lawyers to take that position depending on what the law is that they're suing under. But if the lead generator obtained a lead from a downstream publisher and then sold it to another party who then used it, that party who used it, if they get sued or investigated, investigation is hard to turn around and point the finger at the lead generator, although that certainly will happen from a practical perspective. But from a legal perspective, there almost for sure will be an agreement between the lead generator and the entity to which that lead was sold, whereby the entity to which that lead was sold will come around and ask for defense and indemnity from the lead generator. And if I'm representing the lead generator, hopefully they would have followed my advice and my agreement that will allow them to disclaim those sorts of things. And I'll be able to say, look, you don't have a basis to come after us because under our contract, the buyer took all the risk associated with that lead. But if I don't have that kind of contractual protection, it becomes a little bit more difficult, especially if there's an indemnity or defense provision going the other way that says if the marketer gets sued or investigated for something my lead generator sold them, then the lead generator has to respond. It becomes harder to defend on that basis. So it's really going to come down to what the contract says in that circumstance. And how do you, when you're doing those contracts, because that is really the basis when there's some sort of lawsuit or dispute, everybody all of a sudden goes back in their emails and their folder and say, well, where's the contract? What does the contract say? It's so important to have the contract, no matter who I'm representing, whether I'm representing the lead generator, the buyer, downstream publisher, to have that thing locked down from day one. It's so important because it becomes very difficult if there's a contractual dispute later to defend or prosecute a claim if the contract's a mess, or if it's even unsigned. I've seen even that, where it's not even signed, or there's no date. Like, these things matter, whether it's arbitrated or litigated, where it's arbitrated, where it's litigated, whether there's a cool-down period. I mean, there's all of these things that you check out and follow and just make sure that you have anticipated as many scenarios as you can on the front end so you're not sort of making it up and gap-filling on the back end. In that spirit, too, I would suggest stepping back and doing due diligence on your potential customer, regardless of where you might be in the ecosystem. If you're the platform and you're going to be generating the leads, or if you're a publisher, a buyer, seller, know who you're doing business with and check them out. If you're a potential investor in one of these companies, understand what the past practices are and what the upside might be given the current legal and regulatory environment. Diligence is really important. 
on the contract, establishing those contractual requirements and service level standards, as well as also representations about you know, how the leads are going to be used can be critical. And audit rights, so you can continue to do that diligence and the monitoring. And understanding if there's other vendors involved can be very important. Um, there's oftentimes a tendency for companies to be very good at one thing but not another, and therefore obviously contract with third-party vendors as service providers. Understanding who's involved in the mix and who has the authority to approve or disapprove the use of those vendors can be extremely important too, especially if you're going to go to the trouble and take the prudent course of action of doing all that diligence on the front end. You're going to want to know who's doing the work on an ongoing basis. And then requiring those vendors to maintain the same standards and requirements that you engage in on a day-to-day basis. Now, there are in some cases, some additional nuances with respect to the substantive creative, uh, who's responsible for creative, both as a practical matter and also sort of from a subject matter expert standpoint, as well as also approval and disapproval rights. That can be sort of done a variety of different ways. And in some sectors, there's sort of standard course of action. Oftentimes, for instance, in the consumer finance space, companies involved in bank partnerships doing advertising and marketing on behalf of banks for marketplace loans will typically have to have their advertising and marketing approved by the bank. In other scenarios, though, that may be less regulated, the end buyer may be exercising less control over the creative. That may be intentional, and it may not be. But understanding how that's supposed to play out and certainly can be addressed by contract. And there may be a, a prudent reasons to go one direction versus another, both based on the actual facts of the individual relationship, as well as also how the ecosystem works overall. You guys both talked a lot about contracts and making sure your contractual provisions were in place and keeping those things buttoned up and compliance. But one thing I would also add to that and open this up for your input is uh, the monitoring side and the practical side of making sure that the leads are good from specific lead generators. And if you're starting to see an uptick, for example, in chargebacks that are coming from a certain affiliate ID or a certain lead generator, or you're, you're getting a lot of complaints saying, I didn't have I didn't give consent for this call. Why are you calling me? And, and you find out it's because maybe somebody down the chain didn't do something right. Ari, could you give some other practical things that companies can do or things they should look out for, red flags, that indicate to them or should indicate to them to stop, look under the hood, and make sure everything's going okay? Well, chargebacks and complaints are two obvious ones. There's also technology that's available that sort of scores leads. And that really should be done at the lead generation level because they should be screening their leads before they sell them to the vendors. But some some vendors or buyers also, you know, score the leads and make sure that there's some algorithm that they apply to it. Of course, it's not perfect, but there are some rules that can be applied, you know, searching for fake addresses and IP addresses that don't match, things like that. Those are technical things that can be done. If you're hiring a lead generator that is generating the leads and or is also using third-party downstream publishers or other lead generators to generate leads, you can monitor the sub-IDs because if you're hiring a lead generator that's sending you millions of leads a month, and if that lead generator is using multiple parties to generate those leads, you know, you see a spike in complaints, but it's only coming from a segment of them, it might very well be the case that there's one sub-publisher that's causing the problems. And so 
ask for a way to identify that. You can also test it on the front end. Like I've had clients hire lead generators and, and networks that have thousands or hundreds at least of downstream publishers. They're like, look, we only want to test five or test 10 or test 15. Do that on the front end to weed out any problems or to ensure that you're only getting the best. And of course, that's subject to negotiation. It's going to affect the price and everything else. That's one way to do it. And another precautionary issue is whenever you have a lead generator who has large numbers of sub-publishers, try and get that number down as much as possible. My experience is, is the fewer sub-sources you have, the fewer problems you have. But when a problem does arise, it's easier to identify and stop. And of course, everybody's doing this anyway, but I can't help myself monitor all this in real time. And it, sh- and it should be done. So the technology already enables you to do that. But make sure that there's actually human you know, looking out for the alarms and the bells and whistles that go off when there's a problem. That makes sense. Jonathan, what are your thoughts on the practical side of what companies can do? Yeah, I completely agree with Ari's recommendations and suggestions here. You know, it's not a one-size-fits-all approach, of course. Certainly, with respect to some of the technology solutions that are out there, there's terrific monitoring services that can allow for that real-time monitoring. You can identify the spikes of consumer complaints and other sorts of infractions, for instance, for keywords and, and so much more these days than ever before particularly now with the use of AI tools augmenting what is already in place there with some of those services. But an important thing is is to actually use that data and to act on it, to be able to interpret it. Now, the interpretation may not be clear-cut. You may have to connect the dots with other areas of operations and further investigation. Just because there's a spike doesn't necessarily mean there's a violation. And just because there's a keyword that pops doesn't mean that that's necessarily verboten. It may just be a heightened risk. On the other hand, though, there may be certain clear-cut circumstances where if somebody's not paying attention, that very information is you know, later going to be uh, harmful. Now, one other thing, though, that I think is extremely important in this context is the use of tools is oftentimes thought of from a compliance standpoint. Where are you going to have the most risk? So again, it's like these chargebacks, consumer complaints. But it's also, in some cases, sales data and other information about what oftentimes businesses consider to be successes can be useful when doing compliance monitoring. The reason being is is because in some cases, your most successful lead may be the one that was promised the world and ultimately doesn't get it. And so, you know, misrepresentations can result in consumer complaints, but the government would also contend that misrepresentations may lead to increased sales. Um, And so it's important to consider not just what you would view as being tools in the compliance bucket as being the method to achieve and mitigate compliance risk, but also really the totality of all the information available to the business. I think that's an excellent point, Jonathan. And particularly about the increased sales, because I I think that we've seen on the contract side, Ari, you and I have talked about this as well, that click-through rates or conversion rates that are particularly high are oftentimes seen as something that could be a, a red flag. One thing that I'd also like to ask about is the FTC's safeguards rule. Jonathan, can you speak a little bit about that? Yeah. So there's a new effective safeguards rule from the FTC that applies to financial organizations, including their lead generators, have a host of requirements that require taking action and has required taking action by this date. But Shaheen, data security and privacy concerns are especially at the forefront of all 
government agencies, even ones that don't have necessarily direct enforcement responsibility. But whether it be a misrepresentation about privacy and data security, a lack of transparency with respect to how the data may be used when it's collected and how it's going to be stored, those are issues that are extremely important for companies to stay on top of. And especially, though, in the financial services sector, where there's some of the greatest lead generation activity taking place. There's now a host of new requirements that uh, the Federal Trade Commission has the enforcement authority over and very technical requirements to have certain compliance mechanisms in place, uh, reporting to the board and uh, designated officer as well. So there's a host of requirements there. And those are also ones that would apply you know, to financial organizations generally, but expressly to finders of customers, uh, also known as lead generators. We've talked about a lot of the other issues on, on separate podcasts like endorsements and testimonials and telemarketing and texting. So obviously those can all be their own. So I'm glad that we were able to cover the really nuanced issues of lead generation here today. Thank you, Ari and Jonathan, for being here. Thank you, Sheen, for hosting us. Thank you. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you to Ari Rothman and Jonathan Pompan for their insights on lead generation. You can read more from Ari and Jonathan on the topic in our Advertising Law Toolkit. It's available at venable.com slash adlawtoolkit. And you can stay on top of these and other advertising law developments by visiting our blog, allaboutadvertisinglaw.com. Please join us next week when my co-host Len Gordon talks to our Venable colleague Roger Kalizi and former colleague Alex McGarris about surviving an FTC investigation. I'm Shaheen Rothermel. Thanks for listening to the Venable Ad Law Toolkit Show.